Imagine that you are the manager of a great concert hall here in New York City. Uh, maybe Carnegie Hall or the Metropolitan Opera House or David Geffen Hall at Lincoln Center. Um, and for generations, concert goers have flocked by the thousands week after week, year after year to hear the beautiful music in your historic hall. And then suddenly, in the middle of your busy season, a small informal group of musicians begins to play and perform day after day, night after night, right outside the main doors of your concert hall. And, 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 and they're playing outside of, of your concert hall where you're supposed to be having these amazing concerts inside. And, and at first you kind of think, well, maybe there's, there's no harm to that. You know, this isn't going to last. But then you start to realize that a lot of the people who should be coming into the concert hall are instead stopping to hear this little ragtag group of musicians. And crowds start to gather. And, and people stay outside listening to the new music. And the leaders of this group start to become well-known around the city. And people are writing articles about, about this new this new exciting group that's happening outside of, of your concert hall. And, and people are talking about them instead of the famous musicians that should be, that are, that are in your concert hall. And pretty soon, as the manager of this hall, you are becoming seriously worried. And you decide that this has got to stop. That this group can't, cannot be interfering with, with what you're doing. And, and so you decide it's time to start, it's time to call the police to forcibly remove them or maybe arrest them for disturbing the peace. Well, that illustration that I just spoke is one that commentator N.T. Wright uses as an analogy for what was happening in Jerusalem after Pentecost. As, as Jesus' disciples, this ragtag group of uneducated followers, we're preaching about Jesus right outside the temple, the, the, the establishment, the, the, the place where everybody gathered. And the leaders of the temple were feeling very threatened by this ragtag group of uneducated disciples who were drawing more and more people to them, to this Jesus movement, and threatening their power and their influence. This summer... We've been going through this sermon series on, from the book of Acts called Witnesses. And we've been looking at how those early followers of Jesus were called to be Jesus' witnesses, to, to testify to who Jesus is, to what Jesus had done. And we've, and we've been seeing them doing that in the city of Jerusalem, testifying, proclaiming the good news that Jesus had risen from the dead. And a few weeks ago, we looked at the first clash that happened between Jesus' disciples and the religious leaders in Jerusalem um, in the aftermath of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And we saw there in, in Acts chapter 2 that Peter and John were arrested and they were commanded not to preach about Jesus anymore. But instead, we saw that the believers gathered together and prayed, actually, that God would give them more boldness to, to keep preaching about Jesus. And they kept doing it. And so in today's text, we're going to see that things are starting to escalate, that more and more people are flocking to this Christian community. It's growing, but at the same time, there is a growing 
anger and frustration among the Jerusalem leaders and wanting to stop what's happening in, in, right in, in their city, in, in the midst of, of, what, of, of the temple. So my sermon title today is Unstoppable Force. And what we're going to see is, is how today's text points to the fact that, that God's mission, what God was doing back then and also what God is doing today, is an unstoppable force, even despite opposition. And we're going to see how that reality, that, that God's mission is unstoppable, how that should impact how we live our lives, how it should impact our witness for him. So our text today is, is Acts chapter 5. Um, last week we were looking at the first 11 verses in Acts 5, which is that challenging passage dealing with Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 12 and finish off through the rest of, of chapter 5. So Acts chapter 5, beginning with verse 12. We read, The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. That's the name of, of one of the, the areas there, right? Uh, on the outskirts of the temple. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported we found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts, teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because... They feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things. 
And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutius appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All of his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, the ability to read what you were doing 2,000 years ago in the early church among these followers in Jerusalem. And we pray that, that you would speak today, Lord, to, to our lives, to our hearts, and that you'd fill us, Lord, with the same boldness and, and knowledge, Lord, of, of your unstoppable mission in this world. And so teach us today, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start um, today by just looking at the unstoppable force of God's mission. When I, when I say that, I use that, that phrase, the unstoppable force of God's mission. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, we see kind of this idea um, in our text where the religious leaders in Jerusalem are, are weighing whether or not to kill the apostles for continuing to preach about Jesus in the temple courts. And, and as they're considering this question about what should we do with, with these men, this rabbi... As, as I read, named Gamaliel, stands up in the Sanhedrin, in, the, in this council, and in verses 38 and 39, he says this. He says, Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. See, this, this Pharisee, Gamaliel, who is, who is a rabbi, he's actually, he was, was a quite famous rabbi at that time. Um, we find out later on that actually Paul, the apostle, taught, was, was taught under Gamaliel. But he understood something. He understood that when God chooses to do something, nothing can stop it. When God is going to act, he's going to act. God's mission is unstoppable. 
And we see this actually play out in the course of, of, of this text this morning. You know, you see Peter, John, the apostles, they're preaching about Jesus in the temple courts. And of course, again, these religious leaders get very angry and they arrest not just Peter and John this time, like we saw in chapter three, but this time they, they arrest all the apostles. They just take them all into jail. And, and you can tell they're just, they're just trying to bottle this thing. They're trying to stop it with however power they have. But God's mission can't be stopped. And in fact, as, as they're sitting there in jail at night, what happens? An angel of the Lord opens the doors of the jail and brings them out. God just says, all right, you know, you're not going to stop me. He just opens up the jail and, and they're back out. But what does the angel tell them to do? To get out of the city? Find a, a safe place to hide from the religious authorities? No. In verse 20, the angel says, go, stand in the temple courts, and tell the people the full message of this new life. In other words, the angel says, hey guys, go right back to what you were doing. Keep preaching. Keep preaching in the temple courts. Keep telling the people about Jesus. And, and the religious authorities discover that somehow these apostles have gotten out of jail. Don't you love that? They're at the jail. They're like, uh, the jailers are like, we don't know where they went. You know, the doors were locked. I don't know. And all of a sudden, someone comes and tells them, hey, those guys you locked up, they're back in the temple. They're preaching again, right? What's, what's going on here? And so they say, all right, let's arrest them again. That worked great last time. Let's, let's try it again. So they arrest them, bring them into the Sanhedrin, and they sit them down and tell them, verse 28, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Why aren't you listening to us? Peter and the apostles respond very similarly to what they said back in chapter 3. We must obey God rather than men. We are witnesses of these things. So is the Holy Spirit. We can't help it, right? We have to talk about Jesus. And your, your efforts of stopping us are not working out very well. So we're just going to keep following God rather than you guys, you know? There's nothing that's going to stop this mission. And so this is when the religious leaders decide they want to put them to death. All right, if we can't, we can't lock them up and stop them, then maybe if we just kill them, that will put an end to this. That worked great with Jesus, right? No, right? They, they killed Jesus and, and it didn't stop it. But they think maybe if we kill them. And, and so we see again in our text, Gamaliel urges them, you know, calm down. Let's wait to see what happens here because I don't know. It seems like there's something happening. Angels are releasing them from prison. Let's wait and see. Is God actually behind this? And in verse 40, we read, His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They're still trying, right? They, they flog them. They beat them. They order them not to speak in the name of Jesus. But it, it's, it's like their efforts are just, they're, they're, they're futile, right? What happens as a result? Verse 42 says, Day after day in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. 
They just keep doing it. God's mission cannot be stopped. No matter what these authorities do or say, it doesn't make any difference to the apostles. They just keep preaching about Jesus. God is doing something in Jerusalem. He's moving. And, and, and no human effort to try to stop this is going to work. But I want us to think a little bit about, in light of that, in light of the fact that God's mission is unstoppable, that God is, he's going to do what he's going to do, what are the ways that we sometimes respond to that? So I want to look at three responses to God's unstoppable mission, which we see in this passage. And the first is kind of what we've been seeing already, which is one response is to fight against it, to try to stop this. That's obviously the response of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, too, when we looked at Acts chapter 3, that, that there are people in our world today who adopt this approach, too, who, who are doing everything they can to fight against God's mission, to fight against the spread of the gospel. We see this, you know, in severe circumstances, like in countries where Christianity is made illegal, where the attempt is to, to just suppress this message. But we often see what ends up happening in those places. The church grows with leaps and bounds, even in the midst of persecution. We, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, too, that even here in the United States, we can sometimes face opposition when we proclaim the good news of Jesus, when we proclaim this message that Jesus alone saves, that, that, that that's not a popular message to proclaim in our society. And, and so there are people who will fight against God's mission. But today, I want to actually, on, on this kind of this point, I want to think a little bit about the reason why the Jerusalem leaders fought against it. We talked about some, some of those reasons a couple weeks ago, but in, this, in our text today, there's a particular phrase in verse 17 that highlights part of what's going on in their resistance. In verse 17, it says that they were filled with jealousy. They were jealous of what God was doing through the apostles. They were jealous that, that this, this movement was happening and it wasn't connected to them. They felt threatened. And so the, the religious leaders, they're more concerned with their popularity, with their power, with their mission, rather than what God was doing apart from them. Now, most of us, I think, wouldn't think that we'd be in danger of this response, right? Most of us, we're, we wouldn't think that we would ever be fighting against God's mission, right? I mean, why would we do that? But I want you to think for a moment, what happens if, if God starts working powerfully through someone else, but he doesn't seem to be working through you? in the same way? What if you see, you know, God's really blessing this person over here, but, but it feels like he's not blessing me in that way. In, in the past few years, there have been several new church plants um, in Bay Ridge, the neighborhood right next to, to ours here. And I've actually gotten to know a couple of those church planters. And I, I wish that I could say that my only response 
what it was excitement and praise to God for what he's doing through those other churches. But I have to admit that in my flesh, there's a part of me that my response is jealousy. It's a little bit like these religious leaders. I feel like, why is God blessing these new churches over here? Why are they growing when, when ours is, our church is not growing as much? And, and I can start to get into this comparison mindset where my focus becomes centered on me and on my failure or success or on our congregation's growth or lack of growth. And what ends up happening is that actually that perspective can actually blind me to what God is doing in our church and in this community. I can begin to get so focused on, on jealousy and, or, or on I'm thinking elsewhere that, that I'm not tuned in to what God is doing and what he wants to do. God's mission is unstoppable. He is constantly working through his body to draw people to himself. And, and he's doing that in our church. He's also doing it in other churches through the three Chinese-speaking congregations that meet here in our building on Sunday afternoon and, and on Monday. And he's doing it through other churches here in Sunset Park. And he's doing it through some of those new church plants in Bay Ridge. And when we get focused on trying to build our kingdom rather than God's kingdom, we can be in danger of actually fighting against God's mission. Just like the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And it can happen on an individual level sometimes too when we begin comparing ourselves to other people, other Christians, and, and we start getting into this comparison mindset and we're focused on ourselves rather than on God's kingdom and being able to praise God for what he's doing in that person's life or what he's doing through that person's life. And we can almost begin to block what God's doing because we're, we're getting so focused on ourselves. So one of the ways that we can sometimes respond to God's unstoppable mission is to fight against it, sometimes in overt ways, sometimes in more subtle ways. But a second response that we see in this text to God's unstoppable mission is to observe it from the sidelines. And this is actually kind of what Gamaliel's recommendation is to the Sanhedrin. He tells them, leave these men alone. Let them go. And so he says, you know, don't fight them, right? Don't, don't fight it because it could be God. God really could be doing something. So don't fight it. But he doesn't encourage them to join the apostles either. Right? His basic response is, let's just kind of wait and see. Let's observe from the sidelines. Let's see how this whole Jesus thing plays out. And, you know, maybe at that point we'll decide what, what to do. There are many people in our world who respond to God's mission this way. That some people are, are kind of like Gamaliel. They're, they're not sure what to make of this Jesus and his gospel message. And so one response can be to kind of observe from the sidelines and, and you know, say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check it out. I'm going to kind of maybe learn a little bit more about Jesus. Maybe I'll go to church once in a while. But there's a hesitation to actually dive in. And I want to just say, if that's you, if, if, if you can relate to that response and you're here today, I'm glad that you're here, actually. I'm really thankful for that, that you are checking it out, that you're, that you're interested and wanting to see. But I also want 
to encourage you when we get to the third response, because I'm going to have a little bit of a challenge for you if you're maybe in that place. But before we get to that, that third response, I, I do want to also realize that there is another kind of person who can sometimes have this observe from the sidelines sort of response. Because it's, it, it doesn't only happen for people who are maybe seekers, those who are not believers in Jesus, who are sort of like checking it out, deciding, am I going to dive in or not? But sometimes even for those of us who are believers in Jesus, we can sometimes stay on the sidelines. And in fact, sometimes the unstoppable nature of God's mission might actually lead some people to be tempted to choose this response. Because some, you might think, well, you know, if, if God is going to accomplish his mission, no matter what, why does he need me? Right? If he's going to do what he's going to do, then, then, then what's the point? Why would I want to put myself in danger like these apostles or sacrifice some of my comfort and security if God doesn't really need me? I mean, he's going to accomplish his mission one way or the other. And so, so why... Why deal with it? sacrifice if, if I don't need to? Well, to answer that question, let's look at that third response of God's unstoppable, to God's unstoppable mission. And that third response is to join it, to join the mission. Go back to that opening illustration of a group of musicians playing outside of that large concert hall, and, and you're... You're the manager of the concert hall. Now imagine, you know, you're, you're like these religious leaders. You're upset and you go out to confront these musicians to demand that they have to leave or you're going to call the police. And then all of a sudden, one of the musicians comes up to you and gives you an instrument and says, come and join us. Come play some music with us. We'd love to have you. That's basically what... Peter and the apostles actually do for these religious leaders. You may have missed it when I was reading. But here's what they say when they speak at the Sanhedrin. First of all, they, they do tell them again that they're guilty of killing Jesus. They, they don't water that down. <laughs> you know, they, these, the leaders even, they're like, you're, you, you're making it sound like we're somehow guilty of this man's blood. And they're like, yeah, you, you actually killed him. <laughs> Right? They don't, they don't water that down. And they say, but God raised him from the dead. He exalted him to the highest place. But then he says this. He says, and he did this that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. Now, guess what? Those religious leaders are part of Israel. The apostles are saying, you know, God, he sent Jesus not to condemn Israel but to forgive Israel, to even forgive you for killing his son. Could God actually give repentance and forgiveness to those religious leaders? You better believe it. He could. Would they receive those gifts of repentance and forgiveness? Sadly, they didn't. They refused. But those gifts of repentance and forgiveness, they're not just for Israel. They're for you, and they're for me. And when we receive these gifts, we are invited to join God's unstoppable mission. We are given 
an instrument and said, come and join us in the song. Let's play together. Let's proclaim this good news to the world. Not to observe from the sidelines, but to start playing music with them. Are those, in, are those, those musicians going to, to, to keep making music even without us? Sure. But why would you want to miss an opportunity like that? Why wouldn't you want to join in the music, to join in the mission? Think about it. Most of the time when we're invited to become a part of something, there's no guarantee that it's going to succeed. Right? You join a, a, an athletic team or you accept a job or you say yes to a volunteer opportunity and you join in, you, you decide to jump in, but there's no guarantee that it's going to work out. God's mission is unstoppable. He says, you join me, you're guaranteed to be a part of the winning team. This mission is going somewhere. If you want to be a part of something that's life-changing, that is going to change the, the world, why wouldn't we jump at the opportunity to dive into that with both feet, to be a part of his mission? Now, it's important to recognize, and I think this is also, again, one of the reasons why we sometimes hesitate, is that this mission does involve sacrifice. And it can even involve significant losses. Because the apostles, they were continually arrested. They were accused. They were beaten. Eventually, all of them, except for John, were killed for their faith. So God's unstoppable mission doesn't mean that we will always have earthly success. It doesn't always mean that there will be freedom from discomfort or even freedom from suffering. And sometimes it may even look as if God's mission has been stopped. But we know that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, Nothing can stop God's mission, not even death. Not even death can stop it. As we see in Jesus' own death and resurrection. So I want to just leave you with a question. Will you join it? Will you join this mission? If you're sitting on the sidelines, waiting, trying to decide, you know, whether or not to follow this Jesus, I want to encourage you today to jump in, to try it, to grab an instrument, join the band, join God's unstoppable mission. There's a place that he has for you in this mission. And if you're weighing whether it's, it's really worth it to give up your comfort and your security in order to join this mission, whether God really needs you, he doesn't need you, but he wants you. He wants you to be a part of it. And he will show you how the comfort and security that he gives far surpasses any kind of comfort or security that you could attempt to hold on to for yourself. And that being a part of the glorious mission that God has of reaching people with the gospel will far out, outweigh even suffering that we might undergo as a result. You hear what, what happened to those, to those apostles when they got flogged? It said that they rejoiced, that they were counted worthy of suffering for the name. Can you imagine having that perspective? 
How did that happen? It, it happened because they knew their Jesus and they knew that he overshadowed anything. And so come and join us on Thursday. Come and welcome our neighbors along with YouthWorks to share a meal and, and build some relationships with our community. You want to know what it looks like to be a part of God's mission? Come on Thursday. Be a part of that little part. Or come and share about Jesus with some kids and some youth in our Thrilling Thursdays ministry or on Sunday mornings at Children's Church. Or, or who is God placing in your path that he's wanting you to be a witness to of the good news of Jesus? Is there a coworker or a neighbor or a family friend or, or a family member or how can we support and encourage God's mission, not just in our congregation, not just in our community, not just in our relationships, but in other congregations and other communities and through relationships all around our city and our world? You know, one of the things that I began to, to think about just the last couple of weeks as I was thinking about some of those church plants over in Bay Ridge, getting to know some of those church planters, I was starting to think, you know, what would it look like for our church to join them and to partner with them in what God is doing there? Why, why, why not join together? Be a part of, invite them to be a part of what God's doing here and, and join them in what God's doing there. Why not start to think about how can we partner together to be a part of God's mission in this world, to celebrate what he's doing wherever he's doing it? Brothers and sisters, God's mission is unstoppable. And by his grace, he wants us to be a part of it. And so may we be like those Jerusalem believers that as we again read at the end of our text, it says day after day in the temple courts, on 59th Street, on 8th Avenue, Bay Ridge, Diker Heights, from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled that you would want to use us in your mission. That you who are the God who is able to draw people to yourself that you choose to use people like us, people who sometimes get wrapped up in, in trying to build our own kingdom and comparing ourselves to others. And we who, who sometimes feel like we have nothing to offer, why would you want to use us? But you, Lord, look at us and you say, there's a, per there's a part for you to play in my mission. You've created us. You've shaped us in powerful ways. You've given us gifts, Lord. You've given us experiences in our lives, and you want us. There's a, there's a perfect instrument for us to play in that ensemble. There's a perfect role that you have for us to play in your mission. And so we pray, God, that, that you'd give us the courage and the boldness, just as those apostles, to go and to ask you, to seek you, Lord, to say, Lord, where is that place that you're calling me to serve? Where is that place in your mission? And Lord, that we would go with joy and gladness as we watch you at work, saving people, bringing people to yourself, 
that we would be a part of that, Lord, not just watching from the sidelines, but that we would even see you using us as a part of your kingdom's work. So thank you, God, that it doesn't depend on us, that your mission is unstoppable. You, You will do what you will do, but that you choose and you want us to be a part of it, to experience the joy. And so show us, Lord, what that is. Give us boldness to go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.